So we talked in our week two debrief about that Richard Rohr quote, which dealt with problem solving and like how we're very quick to solve problems instead of learning the fears and anxieties around those problems. And we brought that to the group and talked about what we can learn from our fears and anxieties and what those fears and anxieties might be telling us about what we need from community or about what we want to contribute to community. It was one of the more difficult things that I've ever had to convey, it seemed. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was kind of this, like, introduce the topic, and then everyone's like, what do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I do remember we veered off of that that question real quick. Like, we we covered it. Like, we, we spoke to it, and everybody had a feeling about it, but then it took on a life of its own. Like, it became a very kind of spirited conversation in its own right. I also felt like there was a fundamental confusion regarding like how, when, when the anxiety is useful versus when it's not. Like I, I remember that coming up a lot. People were sort of almost looking for a little bit of guidance as far as like, well, when is this negative feeling connected to a positive lesson versus when is this negative feeling something I should tamp down and like work on? Or when I remember somebody asking specifically like, when is it kind of a red flag about the group that I'm trying to, or the community that I'm trying to be in. When is this actually, we did get onto like the survivalistic aspects of anxiety, I think, in Mm -hmm. social settings. And that was a big conundrum, if I recall, like, where is it a survival mechanism versus where is it, you know, just excess or potentially pointing towards new growth. And it's hard to solve that. Like, it's hard to propose a real solution beyond listen to your heart, you know, because it's really subjective. Mm-hmm. I find that that's a very easy place to go yep. in in community when I'm not sure that I belong, when I'm still trying to tamp down those fears and anxieties and, and only problem solve and not learn from them at all. Yeah. Like you often find yourself looking for more problems to solve. And I think that's where the anxieties come about. That's where the survivalist concerns come about, you know? Yep. Whereas, and I've been saying this a lot, like thinking about 2019, right? Looking back, there were things that during that time I wanted to change. And during this time, I definitely would still change if I had the power to. Yeah. But looking back on 2019, I'm like, that was probably one of the best years of my entire life. Because I was a lot less concerned with how I'm seen. I didn't feel the need to like, like we were just talking about putting on, like putting my feelings into content. Yep. I put a lot of my feelings into community engagement and into participation in something and into creating my own institutions like podcasting and, and hosting concerts and, and everything. Like, But something I can't stop thinking about, and I'm saying it all the time now, is like the more that we actively engage in community, the less we have to be concerned with our belonging within community. And that's yeah. not always true. Yeah. That's certainly not always true, but like, Looking back on that time, yes, there were things that felt off and that I like wouldn't have changed, right? Yeah. Or, or would have changed. But I also remember feeling like, for now, this is okay. Yeah. This isn't a place where I would want to lay down permanence, but this is a place where like I'm understanding of my role and I'm understanding of the fulfillment that I do get out of it. Yeah. And I'm realizing how special that was of a feeling that was, but it wasn't like I was consciously going for it. It was just that I was actively involved, actively like not just being a, a, a recluse. Yeah. 
And I feel like everything that I'm feeling right now about like insecurity towards community and whatever is because I've been reclusive. Yeah. And the more that you are just active out in community, the more that you are just a willing participant, the less those fears tend to overtake you. So anyway, the survival aspect of it kind of comes back to that where like you are going to be able to survive. You are like there isn't necessarily a danger or there isn't necessarily a warranted fear in a lot of community situations, a lot of community settings. Yeah. But it's easy to feel like there are if you're not a willing participant in the way that you want to be. Yeah. Or like in sort of a more actualized role. Yeah. You know, that's what I've been finding lately. One thing too that I don't remember if I brought it up in the group. Um, I wanted to if I didn't, but I sensed a lot of guilt around the idea that like people were going into community with their guard up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see that if your goal is openness and your goal is like full connection, why that would feel funny that one of the aspects of your social interactions that that's preventing you from feeling that is kind of just self-generated or generated by your own memories and trauma. But I found myself thinking that like your your guard is yours to let down. Like that's not for anyone else. That expectation isn't for anyone else to impose on you. And mm. if you're in even the most benevolent and beautiful and communal of community settings where you are truly in no danger, it doesn't matter if you feel like you are and you don't feel completely safe and willing to let your guard down yet, you're under no obligation to. That isn't to say that you shouldn't work on it if you want to work on it. Like, you know, if it's coming from a place of like, like if you have PTSD around something and you know you do, but it just doesn't feel good to like walk that back yet, then Mm. that's fine, you know, work on it. But it's like, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough with conversations about community is that those survival mechanisms are there for a reason and they don't always fire when you want them to, but it's okay to also go into stuff with your guard up and then maybe after a while you feel content to let your guard down, but -hmm. your guard's up for a reason. I don't think anybody truly chooses to live that way. Mm -hmm. I think you get forced to after a while, but it's hard to sort of like walk that line. Like where are you sort of hanging back? Cause you might be afraid to confront something versus where is it something that genuinely, even if the other people have no idea, is it something that you just are not ready to like handle yet? It's a fine line. Yeah, it is. And I think like the word mechanism there is a really important word because talking about like worrying about quote unquote surviving within community, like that sounds like very extreme, but calling it a mechanism, like, yeah, our brains are programmed to worry that we won't. This is something that we brought up as uh, rejection sensitive dysmorphia, dysphoria. Yep. I always get those words confused. Um, RSD, rejection sensitive dysphoria. And you know, it's, it's, it's a vestigial thing um, that is theorized to have something to do with uh, not belonging to a tribe. And yeah. So like if you don't fit in somewhere, like you will, have an, you will have an active fear that you don't belong to a tribe so that you are more incentivized to belong to a tribe so that your needs will be met by the tribe. Yeah. So looking at it as a vestigial trait that humans tend to have, that's where some of this fear of survival might come from. But that's an extreme example. Yeah. You know, but seeing it as the mechanism is there because it has been built into us over thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. 
we do have this mechanism where we want to belong and we want our individuality to be honored and we want certain things about us to be valued by the tribe. And it's not anymore so that we will survive. Yeah. But it still feels that way. Yeah, because in a first world sense, balance is kind of the same as survival in some ways. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you're, those mechanisms might not be keeping your spot around the the campfire that's like keeping the tigers away and shit, but like mm -hmm. they are keeping you cemented in your place in the social hierarchy. They're keeping you employed. They're keeping you surrounded by people, which would keep you from being lonely. Like it's, it's not as physical of a survival, but it's kind of our equivalent unless you are actually in like a life or death situation. Yeah. It's as, as close as a lot of people get. I mean, I, I look at those mechanisms kind of like, like my favorite, like, car analogies you know like it's they're the brakes they're sort of like for all intents and purposes they're there to keep you from getting fucking killed if you're in a dangerous situation and like some people are like comfortable just going out and hauling ass and like never touching them unless danger is right there and mm -hmm. other people like drive like a grandma you know and they're going 45 on the highway and they're riding the brakes the whole time and it's weird to people but like it's either that or they don't leave the house and either way, you know, you're driving and it's like, if you're one of those people who it's like, that's just how you have to be comfortable doing it right now because you've been in 10 accidents, then it's like, you know, cool. That's, I don't know. I just, I think there's like a, that should be more accepted than it is in a lot of cases, not as a destination again, but as like the fact that like, you shouldn't have to fix that before you feel like you can involve yourself fully in a community. No, but you also have to remember that, like, a lot of these folks that we're talking with, like, we're we're talking specifically about church communities, faith communities. Yeah. And so much is equated to survival within those communities, you know? I mean, and, like, afterlife survival. I like that term. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so much is is equated to, like will be with each other for eternity if you do everything right. Oh, God. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I remember at one of the coffee houses I went to growing up, there was a woman uh came to see this band, and she was saying to one of the members of the band, I, I knew the guys in this band really well. They were good friends of my dad's. And they, they were meeting for the first time that night, and... He said, like, oh, cool, I, I hope to see you again soon sometime. And she's like, well, we'll, we'll see each other again in heaven. The creepiest <laughs> fucking thing I've ever heard anybody say. <laughs> and he goes, well, hopefully before then, but yeah, sure. <laughs> That's an awesome response, though. Yeah. Jesus, It's just yeah. like, what? <laughs> anyway, the point is... <laughs> Uh, a lot of things end up being equated to survival mm. in the church. A lot of things end up being equated to well-being that actually have nothing to do with well-being. Their yeah. well-being within the context of belonging to an ideology and their well-being within the context of being accepted for agreeing to that ideology, but they're not well-being in a survival sense whatsoever. Mm. And so I think we're talking about a group of people who has experience with that sort of like cognitive dissonance of, well, all my needs are, all my, my physical survival needs are objectively met in this moment, but I still don't feel like there is an unconditional nature to my, my belonging here or my being respected here. Huh. 
you know, so there's just a, a lot of experiences that people have growing up in faith communities that feel like my survival hinges on whatever value is held within this faith community. Interesting. And that feels the same to your, I mean, this is me speaking from a traumatized place too, but like that, like literally your, your, it can feel like your literal survival depends on the adherence to those rules. Yeah. And the community structures that are in place there. So what do you think the like rewiring of that looks like? Like, I mean, I know you've talked about how it's, it's a somewhat personal struggle as well, but like, is it the Pete Holmes sort of thing where like you sort of just keep dipping your toe in it until, you know, and, and fucking up and, you know, making it, you keep making your way basically and, and learning as much as you can. And it's not always a clean process, but you, you kind of get there or is it, you is know, there another destination? First of all, it's learning how to cut toxic fucking people out of your life. Yeah. If we look at this as learning from the fear and anxiety versus problem solving, like Richard Rohr points out in that quote, yeah. if I see, okay, a lot of my trauma and a lot of my personal struggle has been with adhering to ideology. Well, then I just won't engage with any social group that has ideological pretexts to it. Yeah. I have a difficult time these days referring to myself as a leftist because of that. Like, yeah. the more ideological language, I may agree with the ideology, but the more ideological language is used within a certain belief group, political group, whatever, the less inclined I am to engage with it. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm not going to use the right language here. I'm not going to agree with what you're saying based on what it sounds like. <laughs> like, there's yeah, a lot of yeah. fear that my agreement with someone else's beliefs or disagreement with their beliefs is going to dictate whether or not they like me or whether I'm welcome in their, in their circle. Yeah. So is the solution, and this is, this is from the problem solving angle, is the solution for me to just completely disengage from anything that sounds or seems ideological? That's a problem solving solution. Yeah. There's another solution, which is what can I learn from that fear? Yeah. And the only people who are going to really hold anything against me, ideologically speaking, are shitty people. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. So, like, there's something that you can use, learn from that fear socially. So I, I guess it's kind of the difference between avoiding ideology and ideological language altogether. Yeah. Which is avoidance behavior. Yeah. And learning to recognize where those ideologies and the conditions around them are toxic to others who don't wish to engage with them. Yeah. You know, and so like there's avoided altogether versus discernment. Yeah. And so the problem solving there is the is avoidance, whereas the learning is discernment. And that's kind of what I mean by like some of the value of keeping your guard up though, sometimes if that's part of Maybe not all the way up, but, you know, if that's part of what allows you to, to get back into the game a little bit, then allowing yourself to, to kind of stay a safe distance away from some of those ideological aspects that might feel scary or might feel harmful mm -hmm. until you learn what they are and you learn more kind of deeply, like, why they hurt you. Yeah. There's a great value in having that guard up during that because at the very least it allows you to trade in the suit of armor for a more breathable model, you know, down the line <laughs> where like you keep something to sort of armor you and keep you safe. And it allows you to go into more 
settings and learn more things from more people without feeling like you have to, you know, stamp yourself with whatever ideology prevails in any, any given setting. I struggle a lot with that too, more secularly, obviously, but like just kind of feeling like I have to, I don't know, like embody a little bit of an ideology or play along in a way just to, to be nice that ultimately ends in me debasing myself somehow. And it's like, I've noticed that there's this social fluency that some people have where they're able to just go in to a situation and they just know how to ask questions in a disarming way and they just know how to how to hang out yeah. and hold their ground mm -hmm. but not be pushy. And you like you see it a lot in like certain types of journalists and stuff, you know, like they get dropped into a freaking clan rally and talk to people and then they can get onto NPR to talk about that experience and they're just as comfortable seeming in both situations. I'm sure they're yeah. not fully comfortable in one of those, but there's some value in that. And I think some of that is knowing how to really artfully keep your guard up and understanding that it's your guard. It's not this like big floating ambiguous fear that like kind of shrouds you when you mm. don't want it to. Like this is a tool. This is something that's kept you safe. It's on all the time now. Maybe work on that. But it doesn't mean you have to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's some lessons to be learned from that as much as from the anxiety itself. And it's you can adapt gradually. And I think that's the big difference between avoidance. Again, problem solving doesn't always have to look like avoidance, but like if you just choose to avoid that which felt like it was rejecting you, you don't learn how to adapt your strengths to that thing. Like yeah. any the per, the kind of person that you're describing, right? It's the difference between like the completely avoidant person, the adaptable person, and Bill Maher, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Bill Maher steps into a church; he's going to be challenging everybody. Yeah, right. The avoidant person steps into a church; they're going to be like, "I'm out of here the second somebody asks me if I've been saved." Yeah, and then the adaptable person steps into a church. And if somebody asks you when they've been saved, they have developed a strategy around that. Now, obviously, that, depending on the person, can be a very high degree of adaptation to have gotten to that point. Yeah. But being secure in yourself, and it can happen in degrees, and it can happen in steps. Yeah. But being secure with yourself enough so that you don't feel triggered by that. Yeah. Or don't feel like you need to avoid it absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the difference. It's like if you only avoid, you're not learning. Yep. If you engage properly, you will learn. But it takes a lot of knowing what you're comfortable with and maybe avoiding at first. But I don't know. That, again, it's just, it's just it's my personal story that that has a lot to do with avoidance. It's not everybody's. But that's where I'm finding myself now. It's like learning to engage with community in a healthier way than I did years ago is kind of all about learning how to affirm other people without disaffirming myself. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that is a, <laughs> it's a lifelong thing, man. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. I'm not to, saying I mean, I'm there. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, but you're right that it happens in degrees because it's like yeah. in some ways nobody's really there. It's, ideologies are important and – you know, some of these things that keep us isolated and shit and keep us sort of in our tribes are, they're important, but they should be fleeting too, you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. it's always just a process of moving that line. 
over the course of your life. I guess hopefully we have some control over the speed, but like that's kind of it's kind of it. Like it's just mm -hmm. so much of this shit happens without our knowledge at some point in our lives. So it's like, and especially if you wrap trauma or anything like that into it, it's like it's hopeless. I mean, you can't like pretend to wake up and say, all right, I have full control over this and it's going to feel good. It's like, no, it's going to be a massive anxiety and pain and doubt and yeah. loneliness and shit. But it's like, if you can find the ways to kind of tap dance through that God awful minefield mm -hmm. and just get yourself back onto the threshold of civilization again, then like, that's still something that that's still a pretty big victory. And then you can start to learn from those feelings, but it's a lot of guess and check. And <laughs> it's like, yeah. That's what I was thinking during the meeting. It's like, it's really hard to give people like an action oriented response to questions like that when it like, sure is, it's so subjective and it's so like, especially not knowing any of these people personally. And, and for me, not knowing what it's like to grow up with a religious background like that. It's like, it's, it feels like a time f more for listening than speaking, yeah. but they want speaking. Maybe you, maybe you would get this. Um, cause I would liken it to this. So if you're like a black sheep, if you come to a point in your life where you start feeling like a black sheep in your family or just come to a point in your life where like, I don't know, you go through like a goth phase or an emo phase or something like that and you suddenly feel disconnected from the rest of your family, Yeah. right? Like that is scary and alienating and you don't necessarily know what to do with it at first, mm. but they're still your family. So you're going to have to engage with them eventually. Yeah. Right. And like it may it may suddenly you may suddenly come to a point in life where you don't have anything in common or that's how you feel mm -hmm. with the people who are in your immediate surroundings, right? Mm -hmm. And like the people who you depend on, right? But eventually what you have to do is like remember what it's supposed to be like to interact with family. You yeah. know, and a lot of the time when we've come to that place, it's when we realize that there is, that that disconnect just is there, whether ideologically or in terms of interests or in terms of like you just grow apart from people. That's natural. But remembering that people are family and that there is some kind of common ground that you can stand on. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be ideological common ground and it doesn't have to be based on interests or religion or what you like to eat for dinner. Like, yeah. but there is always some common ground that people can connect on. Yeah. So it's similar to that. It's similar to like suddenly feeling like a black sheep in your family and then having to sort of rebuild the connection. They have to do the work too. They have to be receptive to the new you. And yeah. That's kind of yeah. what I mean by toxic people. Yeah. You know, people who aren't, aren't receptive to the new you, sometimes they have to be left behind. It's harder to leave them behind when it's family. Yeah. Um, but in a faith community, it's a little bit easier. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I've found that to be true with a lot of the people that I grew up with, like friends of my parents who were just like in my life the entire time. And like, I'm suddenly, I don't have solid ground for us both to stand on anymore. Um, but, but they do <laughs> like, I haven't rebuilt it yet, but they never lost it. Yeah. You know, because it's like, it's me. They watched me grow up. That's hard for me to accept. It's hard yeah. for me to like know where to build from there. So it's a similar feeling to that where you do have to take it step by step, take it by degrees. But the recognition that there is a common ground and you just need to learn from that place of disconnect yep. where that common ground is and how to rebuild it. And like which elements do I consciously try to put into our interactions every time we interact 
Yeah. And eventually that'll get a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger. So that's kind of how I try to view it. I'm Again, everything that I'm saying this episode, I'm not good at, <laughs> but I know it to be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've done like a little bit of all of this, but I've never like gotten to that point where I'm fully comfortable. Yeah. Um, and it has a lot to do with power structure. It has a lot to do with the church feeling like survival and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a lot of power structure stuff that I still have not gotten past, but there's a lot of community and family stuff that I'm like, I no longer feel quite like a black sheep because of a lot of things, but like partly because I have accepted my individuality yeah. and I have accepted that others can have their own individuality, their own identity that doesn't have to be affirming of mine. Yeah. And I can affirm my own identity. But there's so much insecurity that can be instilled in us when we fear that what the, the, the identity that we become is different enough from the identity we were raised to be and our survival might depend on having an identity that was wished for us and not the identity that we grew into. Yeah. It's scary. It puts a lot of power in the... Um whether the family or the community, like it puts a lot of power in their hands that it's just, it's a natural consequence of something like that. Like there's a lot of like, they have to do the work, like you said, or they have to kind of they, accept yeah, you. Yeah, they have to be receptive. And what I mean by the toxic people more specifically is like, it's the people who don't recognize that they have that power. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's again, like, that's why I think there's a value to like having a little bit of, I don't know, like being a, the right kind of skittish or the right kind of, guarded against the world at times is like you don't know necessarily where those people are or what aspects of your conversation or your social life or whatever might bring those traits out of people that you otherwise feel comfortable around. So it's just one of those things where yeah. it's like they might not even mean any harm, but don't give them the ability to hurt you if that's a genuine vulnerability. It's hard to sort of know where that turns into, you know, defensiveness or avoidance or something but and it's it's different for everybody too everybody develops those fears and anxieties in different ways and everybody comes out of them and learns from them in their own way yeah but it just it doesn't feel like too much to ask that we don't traumatize our children <laughs> <laughs> and yet we always do yeah i remember this often i was at a friend's family party one time and I don't remember what the woman said, but like there was like a, a grandmother aged woman who said to this small child as like it, there was kind of like a buffet. It was a cookout. It was like a buffet thing. And um, she was taking, I don't know, cake or something. And the I don't remember what she said, but she said something. And I was I didn't say anything out loud. But what I immediately thought was like, you just gave that girl an eating disorder. Ugh. Like she said something like you don't need that much or something, you know probably more harmful sounding than that. And I have some trauma around food. Yeah. So like I always go there. Like I'm more attuned to anything that could mess somebody up around food. Yeah. Because I've had some experiences that I've had. And like it's an interesting demand to make of somebody that they recognize the impact that their words and beliefs and insistence that we heed those words and beliefs might have on somebody younger. And might imprint on somebody in a harmful way. Yeah. 
when they themselves have never had to deal with the fallout from that. You know, yeah. like older generations tend to act and speak with the expectation that younger people are going to heed the way that they act and speak to them and be better for it. Yeah, because it's supposed to be wisdom. It's supposed to be wisdom, exactly. <laughs> like it's, they're this old, it's clearly worked for them. It's like, it's hard yeah. to, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of the time, that's how these things imprint in us. Yeah. It's like, well, first of all, it absolutely, literally, like these are the caretakers. These are the people who feed us. These are the people who aid us in survival because we're humans and we're a weak species because we have to survive under someone else's caretaking for 18 years before we can do it ourselves. There's no other species that's that weak. And even then, it's debatable that after 18 years, we just <laughs> know what the hell anything yeah. is. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, I mean, this wasn't even necessarily the topic, but like... <laughs> We should make like a montage of all the different times we've said that. But. Yeah. Well, but I mean, this is certainly where my head is at lately. Yeah. Um, because of therapy, because like, it's not just about the fears and anxieties that we develop around community or around ideology, but it's also fears and anxieties we develop because of that supposed wisdom yeah. that we were supposed to heed Yeah. when we were young. So maybe... What we can learn about those fears and anxieties is more about what we can unlearn. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I wish we had talked about that in the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.